and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl. Well, I'm a screen guy. Oh, Pennsylvania. We love Pennsylvania. On our last episode, we had the chance to hear from Pittsburgh City Councilwoman Erica Strasburger. She unpackaged the political landscape out of Pittsburgh leading up to the mayor's race on May 18th, and she provided her thoughts on why incumbent Mayor Bill Pagetto lost. Today, I'm really looking forward to chatting with Silas Russell, the VP of SEIU Healthcare. You know, across our country, the Service Employees International Union, sometimes called in campaign war rooms the Army of Purple and Gold, is a rapidly expanding and politically prominent force to be reckoned with. In the city of Pittsburgh, SEIU Healthcare worked hard to elect State Rep. Ed Ganey as the next mayor of the city. Most importantly, the men and women of SEIU, they've been on the front lines of this pandemic, and we owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude. I'm a mayor for all. I'm a mayor for all. And I can't wait to work with everybody. You know, there's no Mayor Peduto supporters, Ag Ganey supporters, there's Pittsburgh supporters, and we want to build a base that talks about how we improve this city. Silas Russell, welcome to my kitchen table. It's good to be here. Silas, I hope you've caught up on sleep. You were deep in the trenches of the Pittsburgh mayor's race. And, uh, you know, we're now uh, more than a week out from that, but would love to share with listeners your background and how you got to uh, deep, deep in those trenches. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. I am a Western Pennsylvanian my whole life, born in Mercer County, a little town in Greenville, and, um, you know, working class family. Grew up, I think, with a strong connection to uh, the roots of Western Pennsylvania being a, a strong labor community, democratic towns that recognize that when working people stand together, that we are stronger. And um, that uh, eventually led me to uh, attending college, Allegheny College, really interested in when I was entering school, figuring out how I could put my time and energy and future into really just improving the lives of the people that I grew up with and the region that I grew up in through politics. I just had a really strong political analysis at a young age, I think mostly because of the community I grew up in, the family I grew up in, and um, wanted to figure out how I could be part of uh, making things a little bit better. And I think I had attended to go to law school when I entered school, but by the time I got out of college, I had spent enough time volunteering in campaigns, uh, organizing on, on campus, being engaged in different political organizations, community organizations that um, graduating in 2007, leading into a major United States presidential election, I thought, you know, I got to get out there and figure out how to help elect some leaders that I really believe in. And um, that was the start of my, you know, career getting working and organizing in uh, electoral politics. So when I graduated college, I jumped on a presidential campaign in Iowa and the rest is history. So was that was that your first or even in high school or from a young age with your folks? I mean, were you going to rallies or, or door knocking? I went to my first rally 
when I was in high school with my dad in Pittsburgh, actually, it was a protest of the United States invasion into Iraq. And, uh, and that was my first ever, I think, major political action. I had been involved in, in school in, um, a, an organization called Model Legislature, um, where we would go to the Harrisburg Capitol every year and kind of take over the Capitol and, you know, pass mock laws. Got involved there, I think, as a freshman in high school. So I was, I always had just a really strong political interest in analysis. But my activism started, I think, around the time of, uh, of the Iraq War and really wanting to have a, I really wanted to speak up in a way that made sure that our leaders were listening to everybody, to listen to people who are most impacted by those decisions. A lot of my classmates were going into the military when I was coming out of school. I, I went to a, a small public high school in rural Western Pennsylvania. Um, and I'd say about 30% of my classmates graduating were entering the military. And I want to make sure that our leaders had the, those, my, my classmates and everybody, as well as the people, you know, uh, around the globe who were impacted by those decisions in mind. And, um, so I think that when you grow up in a community and an environment where there are a lot of people who are struggling, it's hard not to see how the decisions that leaders make and can potentially impact people's lives and, and want to take a role in making sure that we have leaders that uh, are on our side. And I imagine a lot of uh, your classmates in high school and growing up uh, came from union households or had parents who maybe uh, uh, were, were union retirees. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, actually, it was an interesting time. You know, I was born in the mid 80s and in you know, for folks that don't know Western Pennsylvania, um, and I think people, a lot of people know Western Pennsylvania as a, a traditionally a steel community. My community up a little further up the Allegheny River is known particularly for a couple things, tool and die and uh, the tube industry, um, which is you know, part of the steel industry. And a lot of those major employers in manufacturing, you know, where I grew up, in, who, whose families worked there. Um, labored there were in economic turmoil during my time in elementary and high school. And I saw a lot of people's families struggle as, as different mills closed, as workers uh, had to go on a strike to try to preserve their pensions and things that they had built over decades of struggle. So I, I knew people not just who were benefiting from the labor history of Western Pennsylvania, the ability to build power, but I also felt and shared in the struggle that was happening as um, that was declining. And so, you know, I knew that if we wanted to have economic mobility, again, for people like myself, my family, and the folks that I grew up with, that we needed to get back to a place where, you know, workers had power and that we had an economy that responded to, the, to people's needs. So let me ask you, I mean, 2007, 2008 in politics seems like you know, decades ago, it was only, it was less than 15 years ago, but the way we organize, the way we turn out the vote. Yeah. So, so going out to Iowa from Western Pennsylvania, from Allegheny College, I mean, that must've been a little bit of a culture change and then winter hits and that, that's a real uh, wake up call, but you clearly got the bug and uh, it stuck with you. So uh, looking back from the fields of Iowa, I mean, share some of the, uh, the war stories and the highlights that made you want to pursue a career in all this. I got to Iowa. I think I got there on July 4th. I think I went and marched in a, a if I remember correctly, uh, 
a parade in um, in Des Moines. First, I was there, and the our organizing director said, "Oh, you're a you know you're a guy from rural Western Pennsylvania. You can go out and organize in the farming communities in uh, northeastern Iowa." I organized two counties, Butler County and Grundy County. Both probably have more pigs than they no more hogs than they do people, but the people there uh, and the the history there, both politically and economically, through the farming community, the strong tie to farming there, a lot of pride, a lot of uh, investment um, that people have in their communities there. And when people are investing in their communities, people have you know are invested in the future of their communities. And you add on to that the the history and the role that Iowa has in the presidential election. There's a lot of really incredible leadership happening uh, around politics in, in those communities. So I would say there's some culture shock when you go into a new community, but there's a lot in common that people in rural communities have anywhere in this country. And so I got to know people pretty quickly, uh, really enjoyed working with farmers uh, and people in farming communities who I think tend to be modest people, tend to be people who listen first and then talk second. And there's a lot you can learn from talking to somebody who's been farming the same land for 40 years and watching things change in their community. If you give them a chance to, if you, if you get a chance to listen to them and they tend to be leaders in their community. So it was really, really great to work with those folks. Well, amen to that. We could use more of that ethos in, uh, in Washington and, and Harrisburg for that matter too. Uh, so at, at what point did you make your way back to Pennsylvania politics? I mean, so you, you caught the bug, you knew that this is the career you wanted to uh, forge into. So at what point did you come back to your roots? It was just after the 2008 presidential. I did the general election in New Hampshire and President Obama had won, obviously. The DNC and the Obama White House had kind of partnered to figure out how do we take this huge organization of organizers and volunteers that had been built through this incredible historic campaign and try to create a permanent piece of infrastructure out of that. And so people probably remember Organizing for America was born out of the Obama campaign. And I had some colleagues and organizing friends that um, had been tapped to lead that operation in Pennsylvania. And uh, I reached out to them. I said, hey, I'm interested in coming back home. You know, do you need do you need some uh, support? And I was able to jump on with OFA in uh, Western Pennsylvania and moved to Pittsburgh for that purpose. And I've been organizing Pittsburgh since uh, 2009. Well, I remember that. that. That's when we first met. And that seems also like ages ago, with just the way we organize and then the city of Pittsburgh and its economy and certainly its politics uh, over the last 10, 11 years. Okay. So then you join up with SEIU uh, when? And and to remind our, our listeners, SEIU stands for the Service Employees International Union. But maybe tell folks a little about your brothers and sisters and the nature of the union and uh, the Commonwealth and 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 how you guys uh, got linked up. Yeah, SEIU is one of the largest labor unions uh, in the country. And, you know, we have about 2 million members across the country. Healthcare is one of our biggest divisions. And I'm in SEIU Healthcare Pennsylvania, which is our state's largest healthcare union. We bring together 40,000 healthcare workers who work across all facets of healthcare industry, people who work for the Commonwealth, people who work in hospitals and nursing homes and in home care, folks who do the cleaning and the cooking and folks who give care as nurses and aides and tech workers. And I actually um, came to SEIU through the organizing work that both I and, and our, now my union had been doing in support of healthcare reform. In 2009 and 2000, uh, early 2010, uh, obviously it was the biggest undertaking of the Obama administration um, in the first term. And you know, we spent 
over a year organizing to make sure that we were, you know, building the, the popular support in communities and the, and the demand of Congress that we have the boldest, most robust plan possible to get as many people insured as possible. And SEIU was uh, outside of the work that I think OFA was doing, the one of the most invested, mobilizing, uh, organizing organizations out there fighting for healthcare reform in a real serious way. And so I got to know a lot of members of the union. I got to know a lot of leaders in the union and um, other organizers through that. And and I had always, you know, like I said before, always had a really strong tie to organized labor, wanted to be organizing with workers. And so whenever through that process uh, of organizing around healthcare reform, I found an opportunity to join uh, the union as an organizer in, in politics. I was really eager to come on board. And so I've been I've been in SEIU Healthcare Pennsylvania for 10 years, over 10 years now, and recently elected uh, vice president and serve as the political director. Well, a belated congratulations and a uh, belated thank you for uh, the work that you and your brothers and sisters, the Army of Purple and Gold, as I was uh, first taught 20 years ago to call SEIU, have been doing. So my understanding is there's about 45,000 brothers and sisters across Pennsylvania. You're the fastest growing uh, uh, union in the Commonwealth. Is that top heavy in and around Pittsburgh or is it equally distributed across different regions or where are you primarily pulling from? And then also give folks a sense of maybe demographics, uh, age, ethnic background, et cetera, because it's pretty diverse. It is. Yeah. Our local is, I think, really representative of the state as a whole. You know, obviously in healthcare, where largely our membership is disproportionately women, women tend to dominate um, the healthcare industry, particularly in care jobs and in service jobs. And uh, so we're about 70, our, our membership is about 70% female. Our uh, membership is pretty reflective of the communities in which we uh, organize. So the healthcare industry is the biggest industry, of one of the biggest in- industries of employment across Pennsylvania. There are you know m- many towns and cities across the state where the local hospital is, or nursing home are, is, is the biggest or one of the biggest employers. And so we're pretty dense in places where healthcare is a little bit bigger, like places like Pittsburgh and Northeastern Pennsylvania, but largely, you know, we're across the whole state and we have members in all 67 counties. It seems like a while ago now, and thank God we're on the other side of vaccines, uh, but we, we still need to cross that 70% threshold in the Commonwealth, but we're, we're, we're getting there. But I, how, I mean, how was organizing last year? I mean, that must have been, I, I ask everyone this, but for someone uh, like you, who it's now deep in your DNA, uh, I mean, how are you organizing your brothers and sisters in the lead up to such a historic election? The last year has been, obviously for everybody, just a, an immense challenge, both emotionally, economically, politically. You know, nobody could have, I think, predicted what it would be like to go through such a catastrophe, frankly, that it impacts literally every single person on this on the globe. And then whenever you work with healthcare workers, when you are a healthcare worker who has to show up uh, to take on this pandemic directly with the people who are suffering from it, to treat those patients, to figure out how to treat them in a way that's empathetic and with care that also protects you and your family and your community. And um, that's what our members have been struggling with, right, is they are first and foremost, caregivers, and they show up with their patients in mind, but they also have to go home and worry about, you know, making sure the loved ones don't get sick. And on top of it, our healthcare system and our country just was not prepared before this pandemic. And we were particularly unprepared in the way that we uh, support our caregivers and support 
our patients, our consumers. The, the lack of PPE was not surprising to us. The lack of staffing was immensely not surprising to us because healthcare workers were short-staffed before the pandemic. And they're going to continue to be short-staffed after the pandemic if we don't you know, make some big changes to how we prioritize caregiving and treating caregivers uh, as you know the leaders and the immensely um, giving people that they are. So getting back to just the question of you know what it's been like, we've been really focused on making sure that uh, healthcare workers aren't just getting the applause and the pat on the back that they deserve because they do, but that they're getting the respect through change that they deserve. That we're responding to the the leadership and the heroism of healthcare workers by making sure that um, the next healthcare catastrophe that we run into, our workers are supported and protected in a real serious way um, by making sure that we improve our healthcare system, that we improve staffing, that we improve resources at the front lines, that we make sure that care jobs are good quality jobs where people can uh, support their families and their communities. And it's the changes that we decide to make because of the pandemic for the future. It's, that's how we're going to reward our healthcare workers here. Well, at the risk, I will uh, offer the uh, applause again, because as so many uh, of our listeners have been on Zoom and working from home uh, uh, over this last year, your, your brothers and sisters, uh, morning, noon and night, and especially the ones working overnight, they, they were deep in their own trenches uh, through, I can't even imagine, uh, the emotional roller coaster. I want to pivot to uh, the last few months. Your union played an integral role in 2013 and 2017 with Mayor Peduto. And then a decision happened in February uh, of, of this year to do something a little bit different than you had done and endorse the mayor's uh, challenger, who now seems uh, destined to be the incoming mayor. So if we can unpackage that decision, the lead up to it, and ultimately how uh, you all pulled the trigger. It's really never easy to make a uh, an endorsement decision in the union. I mean, particularly because We've got to bring together our membership and make sure that we're united around stepping out and and making a change, stepping out and um, saying that this is a leader who stands with us and we're going to stand with them, right? And so that process happens over a long period of time. And in this case, that process really started when the outgoing mayor decided that that he was going to step back from a commitment and a promise he had made to Pittsburgh's healthcare workers when it comes to holding our biggest healthcare system, UPMC, accountable, both to the citizens and taxpayers of this city, but also to the healthcare workers who work here. And, you know, folks who don't know, UPMC is not just the biggest employer in Pittsburgh, it's actually the biggest employer in the state of Pennsylvania outside of the government. They have 60,000 workers across the state, most of them here in Pittsburgh. And for many of those workers, UPMC has really held them back in terms of making sure that they have, as healthcare workers, uh, a voice, a living wage, the uh, type of support and benefits that they need and deserve. And so there's been a long union struggle going back more than a decade at UPMC. And we had a lot of hope and faith in Mayor Peduto that he would stand with those workers through that struggle. And whenever he backed down from that fight and decided that he was going to side with UPMC on some pretty big things. It was a kind of a rallying call for our membership and for non-union healthcare workers to say, we want to stand with leaders who are not just going to say they're with us and then turn around and do something else, but they're going to be with us every step of the way 
and be unafraid to continue and take on power where we need it. In this case, Ed Ganey had been somebody who'd been standing with healthcare workers through their entire struggle. I mean, he literally marched into the boardroom of UPMC with healthcare workers a couple of years ago to stand up for patients. And so when he suggested, you know, I'm I'm interested in running for mayor. I'm frustrated with the current administration. I'm frustrated with their lack of follow through and leadership on some really big things, including the fight around UPMC. We we understood that frustration and we said, let's get together with our membership. Let's figure this out. And and it was clear that our members had or were ready to move forward with Ed as a partner. Thank you. Uh, I don't think a lot of our listeners knew kind of the behind the scenes there. Give us a sense then from that decision in, in February and then the sprint through uh, this month in May, the primary, you know, organizing still adjusting as we're coming out of uh, uh, the pandemic. But how, how are you engaging and really raising and amplifying uh, this important message and the voice of your uh, your brothers and sisters? Are you directly targeting your brothers and sisters who are registered Pittsburgh voters, or are you engaging uh, beyond? Are you elevating the political dialogue about this important policy issue? Uh, what maybe none of the above? It was all of the above. As a union, when we decide that we're going to uh, support an, uh, a candidate for office, uh, we really see it as a partnership more than just an endorsement. You know, we're saying this is a leader that we believe in, that we trust, that it has is going to fight for the values and the and the ideals that we hold closely. And so we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to do that. And we want to have that conversation with our members, with other healthcare workers, and with people in our community about why those things are important, right? So we were out there making sure, one, that uh, Representative Ganey was, had an opportunity to communicate with our members and healthcare workers about the things that uh, he's fighting for when it comes to racial equity when it comes to demilitarizing the police and, of course, making sure that our, our big healthcare institutions are accountable to their workers and to the taxpayers of the city. And he connected really strongly with our members and with other healthcare workers because of that. Because, frankly, those are not just the big issues in this election. It's really the biggest use for the, the workers in the city uh, that, that they have been fighting for well beyond just this past uh, uh, year. And... Uh, and then we got out in the community and we had the same conversation with voters at the doors. You know, we organized with our partners to make sure that uh, all of the candidates had to answer to those questions of how do we hold our big institutions accountable? How do we make sure that we have leadership that is going to follow through on questions of racial equity and policing on uh, questions of corporate power? And And the result is, you know, the result is clear that I think that the city of Pittsburgh, the voters of Pittsburgh, you know, they responded to that conversation by saying that, you know, we believe we can do better. We believe that we can do more. And we believe that Ed Ganey is the leader that we, that can lead us in this moment, right? When Ed first announced he was running, I, I said on Twitter that he's the right leader to meet this moment that we're in, that it's more than just healthcare, that that's absolutely instrumental to the future of this city. But the moment that we're in in Pittsburgh around having a conversation of making sure that everybody, particularly marginalized communities, are supported and not left behind, that we have racial equity and fairness, both in policing, but also in employment, in housing, that leadership in that in this moment where we're really demanding as voters really big things, 
needs to be unafraid. It needs to be bold. It needs to listen first. And that is who Ed Ganey is as a, as a leader. I mean, he's somebody who people can trust and have trusted because he shows up, he listens, he, and when he steps forward, he's not going to back down whenever things get difficult. Well, you've been super generous with your time, Silas. Uh, you know, I, I'd ask you maybe to look into your crystal ball. The issues you're referring to are, they're deep, they're complex. And, you know, I, I what what happened with the primary race was certainly historic, but, uh, you know, that, that wasn't the be all end all. These are issues that candidates are going to be debating uh, for some time to come. I'd love to be optimistic. I'd love to be proven wrong. So with all this in mind, as we wind down, in 2022, Pennsylvania is going to be probably the epicenter of our national politics with an open Senate race, an open governor's race, uh, redistricting, uh, and the congressional lines uh, making races even tighter. So what does this mean for your brothers and sisters? And to what extent uh, are these battles, uh, do you think, going to be uh, you know front front and center on the minds of voters and, and therefore the candidates? These really aren't new issues. I think that they're, we're in a place where we're having the same conversation that we've been having as labor movement as as movement of of working people for generations it's it's the battleground is what changes right we're coming out of a pandemic so obviously we're talking about healthcare, but also the economy has shifted and so the economic conversation is now more about healthcare and the service economy because that's where people are working and that's where the where jobs are continuing to grow into the future and so Working people and voters are always going to be want to talk about the issues that impact their day-to-day lives, um, impact their ability to get the things that they need to support themselves and their families. And so we're going to continue to organize and fight around economic fairness and justice. And right now, that means making sure that we have a healthcare system that works for everybody, that delivers care for everybody, but also make sure that the people who deliver the care are able to support themselves and their families. The way that we did 100 years ago in the coal industry and the steel industry and the building trades in this country, right? We made those good jobs through the struggle of workers and communities to make sure that we built fair industries. And we're, we have to do that same thing in our service economy and our healthcare industry. And that's, that's not going to go away until we have, until we've, Till we've won those things, right? Because that is the center of our economy, and the in the center of our economy is what impacts working families. and And our our leaders, our politicians, have to respond to the economic needs uh, of the people that that they are elected to represent. Well, here, here, that's an important message. I'm going to ask one final question. Uh, I might, I might be touching a third rail here, but do you envision making an endorsement in the Senate primary? We are going to be deeply engaged with all of the candidates. They've several of them have approached us. Some of them already met with some of our members. Uh, right now, we're focused on making sure that first and foremost, candidates are hearing from our membership and from from healthcare workers about the issues that are facing them on the front lines, and that candidates are ready to fight whoever gets elected for delivering on the things that healthcare workers need. And anything beyond that, I think I, I can't predict, but uh, we're going to be deeply involved in, and engaged in making sure that healthcare, healthcare justice, worker justice is at the top of the list of things that our, our next senator is, is fighting for. 
Well, if you could predict the future and I could predict the future, we wouldn't be doing a podcast. But uh, uh, Silas, thank you so much for the work you've been doing and uh, for your time today. Thank you, Ari. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. As Hillary Clinton used to say, it takes a village. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Sarah McGrath and Jake Schwartz. If you liked this discussion, we would love for you to give us a review, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a suggestion on a future guest and other feedback, visit our website, papoliticspodcast.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at PA Political Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.